Hi, thanks for joining us again as we study the book of Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 17 today, and we're studying the, what we call the wilderness wanderings. If uh, in our studying, if you're watching on uh, our YouTube channel or even on our uh, website, if you're interested in getting the notes, uh, we send them out each week, or maybe you're watching later and you'd, you'd be interested in getting some of those notes, just email the church or give us a call, and we'd be glad to send you an electronic copy. We have ones for every single uh, message that we've put out so far, and we're on lesson 28 already. So if you're interested, just uh, send an email to the church and we can get that to you. As we look at Numbers chapter 17, we're going to, uh, we're going to look at the leadership and authority of Israel once again, because that's where Israel's complaining. Every couple years in our country, as we look at the president or the new president-elect, we always look to what are they going to do when it comes to their cabinet? Who are they going to appoint? Who's going to be their secretary of state? Who's going to be the chief of their staff? And, and we do that and we watch that for a specific reason. Because as we see the president begin to choose their cabinet, we start to see who's going to have the ear of the president. Who's going to help them to dictate and direct policies? Who's going to have constant contact with them, with one of the most powerful individuals in the world? And as we watch their cabinet selection, we begin to see potentially how they will govern. Will they govern extreme left, extreme right? Will they govern more moderately? And, and we watch that. And we can get frustrated, we can get irritated. Even, you know, it's, it's a hard time right now in America because there's a lot of uh, frustration and angst and animosity toward the whole presidential election and the process and everything that has happened. And we can find ourselves, even right now, having an attitude similar to that of the Israelites. You know, well, Moses and Aaron aren't my leaders. That president's not my... I mean, four years ago, we heard that phrase start showing up, not my president, and now we're hearing it again, just from the other side of the coin, not my president. And and we can have that animosity toward the leaders that no matter how we want to slice it or dice it, God is in control and God is well aware of who is going to be the president, even if there are still lawsuits going on, even if there are still other things that are happening in our country, God's well aware. And we can have that tumultuous time and the, the turbulence in America going through it. And we look and we wonder, okay, who's going to be on this, this cabinet? But in Israel's case, there was no question about who the leadership was. Well, there shouldn't have been. God very clearly established Aaron and Moses as the leaders. And yet we have seen from chapter 11 all the way till present now in chapter 17, there has been this constant push against they're not fit to be leaders. They're not the leaders we want. They're terrible leaders. We think their authority is in question. And so that has been coming up constantly through these last five or six chapters in the book of Numbers. Well, God is going to finally put the proverbial nail in the coffin in Numbers chapter 17. And yet, even in through that, we know that we're still going to face Israel grumbling and complaining and not liking Moses and Aaron's leadership. But Numbers 17, God says, I am going to be done with this. I'm going to show you once and for all who the leader is. And so God establishes that and he's going to establish it through a unique and miraculous way. Now, number 17 really is quite a unique chapter in our Bible. As we look at number 17 in our Bible, we see in our English Bible, the account of Aaron's staff budding is found in Numbers chapter 17, 1 through 13. And many of you, no doubt, have heard the story of how Aaron's staff is going to bud, and it's going to be uh, the choice that God has demonstrated and miraculously shows that Aaron is the priest. And we hear that, and we, we understand it, but in our English Bible, it's chapter 17, 1 through 13. The Jewish Bible, however, and even as we, we look back to how the Old Testament sometimes broke up these chapters, the numbering is a little bit different in the Jewish Bible. Now, remember this. The numberings of our chapters and our verses, they are not inspired. They were put in years after the original writings for the purpose of finding and referencing, that's why they're called references, referencing where something is in the Bible, rather than, you know, trying to look and say, about halfway through the book of Isaiah, about the third column, it gives us the ability to quickly, all together as a unit, find and locate 
where the passage of Scripture is. So there's a difference here in how the scholars put that information or saw that information together. Chapter 17 in the Jewish Bible actually begins back in Numbers chapter 16, verse 36. In fact, in my, my Bible, I've drawn a little, a little bracket there and just says from here down in the Jewish Bible, just as a little note, it's Numbers 17. So in the Jewish Bible, they actually start in Numbers chapter 16, verse 36, and go all the way through chapter 17, verse 13, and they call that chapter 17. Now, why do they do that? Why is it, why is it different for them? Again, it doesn't affect, affect inspiration. But how they saw this material fitting together makes a lot of sense. Because from a Jewish perspective... It's different than us. We look and say, okay, here's the next story. We can break it here. It's no big deal. But they saw this unit together because they were looking and noticing the supremacy of the Aaronic priesthood. That it was Aaron and Aaron's family only that was to be in charge of the priestly duties. That they were the ones who were qualified by God to be the intercessors, the mediators between God and the people and the people and God. And so as they saw that, they, they put this entire unit together. Look how, look how it unfolds. In chapter six, 16, verses 36 to 40, we, we talked about Eliezer, the son of Aaron, is going to take those bronze censers. He's going to beat them out. He's going to cover the brazen altar. And it's, in verse 40, it shows us that it's to be a memorial. God says the, the bronze on the, the plates on the altar, they are to be a memorial unto the children that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron, Come near to offer incense before the Lord. In other words, God says only Aaron's line is going to come near and offer. They're the ones who have the priestly duty. And then the people murmur, which we know is their trait, just like many of us. And verses 41 through 50, they murmur and God is, God is done again. And Moses and Aaron fall on their face. They begin to intercede. But in the process of doing that, what happens? Moses gets up and says, Aaron, grab a censer. You need to go. You need to go now. And Aaron runs headlong toward the plague that is coming toward the living. And he stands between the dead and the living, offering this incense, offering mediation and intercession to God. And what does God do? Verse, the end of verse 48, it says, as he stood between the living and the dead, that the plague was stayed. God recognized the, the authority the priestly work of Aaron. And he allowed his intercession, his mediation to, to work. If he didn't recognize that, he would have plowed right through Aaron with the plague and just kept coming. But Aaron's priestly work was identified by God, was recognized by God. So now you have God saying it's only them, God recognizing, and then you get to chapter 17, and God is miraculously going to put an end to the doubt of Aaron's authority. He's going to say, once and for all, I'm going to show you Aaron is the one that I have chosen to be the priest. And his family is going to be the line. And ultimately, God is going to put an end to that grumbling. Look in chapter 17, verse number 10. God says, and the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept as a token or a symbol, a sign against the rebels. It's a hard word against those who are complaining against the authority that I have placed in their life. He says, and you shall quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. He looks at them and says, keep Aaron's rod as a memorial, as a reminder that I have chosen him and that the people need to recognize that I have established this way. These are the terms that I have established to come to me, you must go through the priests, and the priests are from the line of Aaron. So it makes sense from a Jewish perspective, and then in the Jewish Bible, why chapter 1636 through number 1713 all run together, because they see that all highlighting, all validating, all reminding them that Aaron and his family are to be the priests, and they alone. And so they, they, they lump it together. Now, as we look at number 17 today, how does God put an end to that murmur? He says, I'm going to put an end. This is all an end to the murmuring. What happens? So as we look in verses 1 to 5, we're going to see that there is a miracle that is designed by God. God is the one. He goes to Moses in uh, verse 1. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, that normal phrasing that we see starting a new section, but it's tying back in. The Lord speaks to Moses, and what does he say? Speak to the children of Israel and take every one of them a rod according to the house of their fathers, of all their princes according to the house of their fathers, 12 rods, write every man, excuse me, write every man upon his rod, name upon his rod. And the Lord shall write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi, excuse me, and thou shalt write the name of Aaron's rod, for one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. So what is God? God directs Moses. And God directs Moses to have each leader of the tribe bring their staff or bring their rod to them. Now, the Lord initiates and directs the conversation. That's important. It's not Moses doing it. It's not Aaron doing it. It is the Lord directing this. And then he says, bring the rod. The word for rod or staff here is the same word that's also translated and used to talk about the tribe. So it is that, it is that almost like that rod of authority that they have. The staff that the leader of each tribe would have showing that they are the one in control. So Moses is told by God, take one from each tribe and then also take Levi's. Now there's some debate here on, is there just 12 rods or are there 13 rods? I personally believe there's 13. Here's why. The first verse two talks about have everybody from each tribe bring it. And then verse three talks about, and also have Levi's rod have that on as well, the name of Aaron on it. As well, when you look through the numbering in the book of Numbers, you never see Levi numbered with the others. You always have the 12, which allows for Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's tribe, which is split. You have those 12, and then you also have the numbering of the Levi. At the beginning, the Levites, and at the end. So whenever you have that, you always see this distinction. And so following the, the numbering and the way things happen in the book of Numbers, and it seems verses 2 and 3 being, verse 3 being separate, specifically to Levite, uh, Levi's tribe, it seems to me that, and stands to reason, I think that there's 13 rods that are going to be put into the, the, the miracle test here that is designed by God. So as this design, this miracle begins to happen, notice God's direct hand in this process. Verse four, he says, I will meet with you. Verse five, it shall come to pass and I shall choose, verse five. And then he says, I will make to cease from me the murmurings. And he talks about, you know, all these things that he is going to do. This is not Moses. This is not Aaron. This is God. And what is he going to do? He says, I am going to take this dead piece of wood, this staff, and I'm going to bring life to it. It was going to be miraculous. And so God looks and says, here's what I'm going to do. So Moses is going to go to the people and he's going to let them know that. Now, he, God designs it, but then he also carries it out. How does he put an end to it? He performs and he displays the miracle for all to see. So we see that start fleshing out in verses 6 to 9. Moses is going to speak to the children of Israel. And every one of their princes is going to bring the rod. And it's not, Aaron is, Aaron's not involved in this. Moses is. We know there's not going to be any election tampering. It's not going to be, well, Aaron was in there, and obviously Aaron did something to his rod. That's why Aaron's not, no. This is, this is going to be Moses bringing it in, and then even Moses is brought out of the tabernacle because it's going to happen on the next day. It's going to happen through the night. So Moses and Aaron are not even involved in the direct, though Moses is more than Aaron. This is God miraculously showing the children of Israel a sign to say, this is who. My authority, my leader is to be. This is who the priests are to be. Now the people and Moses, they comply. They follow, they follow with God's plans. And Moses lays the rod, verse 7, before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. In other words, he brings it inside the tabernacle, whether it seems to be potentially into the Holy of Holies or just outside of it. We're not sure. There's some debate there. Uh, and I really don't have an answer on it, which way, which way it goes. Uh, because it talks about before the testimony. Is that just a short term for the Ark of the Covenant? Or is it just the tabernacle? But that's a whole nother 15 pages of reading that we would have to do. And we're not going to go there right now. But we know this much. They comply with the following, with God's words. And what do they do? The next morning, you have it where it came to pass on the morrow, verse 8. 
that Moses went to the tabernacle of witness and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded. So it is, God says, I'm going to bud. I'm going to cause one of these staffs to come to life, to bud. And we see that it's Aaron's rod. But notice that it doesn't just bud. Look what happens in the rest of verse 8. It budded, it brought forth buds, it bloomed blossoms, and yielded almonds. Or the the idea is yielded ripe almonds. All in one night. It wasn't just like, oh, maybe his wood, maybe his, maybe his, uh, Staff wasn't really dead and it just has a little shoot on it. No, this staff not only had buds, but it came to a full blossom. It produced ripe almonds overnight. This was something that only God could do. There was no way that Moses was able to do this. There was no way that Aaron could do this. When the people saw this staff, it was evident that God had caused life from death, that God had made the decision to say, this is what it is. It's interesting, and a a lot, not a lot, nearly every single commentator that I read, this was new to me. When they talk about the almonds, the almond, they call it in the the, uh, Old Testament, in that idea, they called it the watcher. Because the almond was the first uh, the first fruit or nut to blossom, that flower would blossom first and people would know, okay, summer, the, the winter time is done. It is that first one. And so they would watch and it was a reminder and it became a symbol to the Jews that even through the harsh, the hardness of winter and the hardness of those times when we're not harvesting foods, that God was still watching. In fact, Jeremiah uses that phrasing in Jeremiah chapter one in his first vision. And he talks about, God asks him, what do you see? And he says, I see an almond tree. And it's, he's reminded, and Jeremiah reminds us that God has his watch care over us. And you look at what is happening, and God is looking and saying, Aaron and the priests are the watch care over Israel. They are the ones who are going to provide for you the ability to have spiritual life through them you can go to God. It all, it all highlights the beauty of what God is saying, that I brought death from death life, that I brought this one here to intercede for you, that he is the way that I have made, that he is the, the terms which I have established in his family. And so it's very clear to the Jews that Aaron, through his staff and everything that has happened, that he is to be the one who is the priest. And he has the authority given to him by God. Not only was there the displaying, but look what else God does in verse 10. He preserves this miracle for all to remember. He tells Moses, the staff, keep it for present, for future generations. We've already looked at verse 10, where he says, I want, I want everybody to know, because this is a token, a sign against these rebels who have been complaining, who have been murmuring, and it is to stop this murmuring and complaining that is against me. And so God says, here's what it is. Here is what I have established, who I have established. And God uses that to put an end. Moses obeys. But what's really interesting, you see that uh, verse 11. And Moses did so as the Lord commanded him, so did he. I have that one underlined and circled in my Bible. Here's why. That is the, the last time we've heard Moses. We've heard that phrase about Moses over and over and over and over again. That he does what the Lord says, does what the Lord says. This is the last time we hear of that from about Moses until later on in chapter 20. But by that point, Moses is lumped in with the Israelites because he has rebelled against God. He has lost his privilege to take the, the Jews into the promised land. He is at a breaking point. Moses is pretty discouraged. Moses is battling because of the disheartening dynamics of the people. And so we have, we have that, it's going to come up. And Moses is not, you're not going to see that for a while in the next couple of chapters that so did Moses. We don't see it again until later on. Just a, just a little, little thing to highlight in the big overall picture of the, of the book. Now, why did God need to do this? Why did God even, why not just like send a big old, you know, miraculous, oh wait, he did. I mean, really, wasn't, wasn't swallowing up the rebels in the earth enough? Wasn't lightning from the sky sufficient? Wasn't the plague plenty? I mean, didn't they, but we know, we know, we know the people. They have hearts like so many of us. 
we know, we hear, we see, and yet we still have that heart that, that walks away from God, that struggles with our sinful tendencies and patterns. So why does God need to do this? I believe there's some reasons, simple reasons. One, because God's discouraged and weary servants needed encouragement. Aaron has just run headlong and stood in life between life and death. But right before that, they're trying to mutiny and coup and throw him out. And right before that, he and Moses are interceding so that God will not destroy them. But what happened right before that? They're being beat up and trying to be overthrown and told how terrible their leadership is. This is just a continual pattern. And I can tell you that when the people you minister to beat you up, it's hard. It doesn't always happen. And thankfully here, it doesn't really happen a whole lot. But every once in a while, it's happened in my, you know, whatever, 20 years of, of ministry. But I can't imagine for Moses and Aaron how frustrated or maybe discouraged they were by millions of people wanting to overthrow them. The heaviness that weighed upon them. And God says, I need to encourage them. Let me, Moses, Aaron, I've got your back. I know that, and I have chosen you. And let me, let me show you by, by showing this rod. They've been rejected. They pray, they intercede. But why else? Because the grumbling needed to stop. God recognized that. God, God said, here's the purpose for this miracle, verse 10. To stop the grumbling, to put an end, to put a silence to the whining and the complaining. Because they needed to know God's authority. They needed to be, have a very clear pointed picture that says, this was not Moses and Aaron coming up with some scheme as a family. This is not just, you know, the proverbial keep it in the good old boys club and that's, they're just the ones doing that. God is looking and saying, no, I am the one who has established this. Knowing that God has chosen miraculously, Aaron should put an end to the grumbling. Look at, look in verse 17 or chapter 17, verse five. Notice what they, God says to them, to Moses and Aaron. He says, whereby they murmur against you. But he reminds them that ultimately in verse 10, I'm going to take away the murmurings from me. God is reminding Aaron and Moses, and this is an encouragement to, to leaders, you know, whether it's a deacon, whether it's a teacher, a pastor, that ultimately the complaining is against God. If you're doing what is right before the Lord, you're making wise decisions according to the Lord as you truly believe is best, that God is looking and saying, this complaining, this whining, this grumbling is ultimately against me. That's encouraging for Moses and Aaron. But it's also important for the children of Israel to know that you can't just get away with this little, oh, I'm just whining. And really, it's not against God. No, I would never whine against God. But I'm gonna, I have a right to whine and complain against this guy. It's a heart attitude. It's a spirit of discontentment. It is an attitude that says God is not sufficiently provided. God has not taken care of. God has not put us in a position that is really good for us. He's messed up. And we would never openly verbally say that, but that is what the heart of a grumbler and a complainer is saying to God. And God sees past the facade. He sees our heart. And that's what he goes by. So we have here that God needed to do this, but there's another reason. I think there's a big reason here. Why does God need to do this? Because it is vitally important for us to know and for those people to understand that the only way into God's presence is through God's way. The only way for them to enter before God, to have their sins atoned for, to have their sacrifices taken to be able to have that relationship with God was through the way that God had established. They could not save themselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. None of us can. I was reading an article and it was talking about um, back when Michael Vick and the whole um, dog scandal and the dog fighting and everything was coming out. And he would look and he, he said a couple times, he's like, I will redeem myself. I will redeem myself. And for some people, like, there's no way you'll ever be able to. Now, we understand what he was saying. Like, I'm going to try and do better, and I'm going to try and show everybody that I'm a changed individual. But theologically, that can't happen. Theologically, we cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot take care of our sinfulness. We need somebody else 
to save us. We need God's way to provide for us that, that salvation. If we're going to have communion with God, it is only going to be on his terms alone, the way he proposes, the way he makes possible. It is not me being able to say, well, I'll just figure out how I want to do it and I'm going to do what I want to do and God will be okay and I'll just establish my ways, not God's ways. When we have broken fellowship with God because of our sinfulness, because of our choices, we must come back the way he appoints, the way he has established. It is through repentance. It is through working on that changing of heart and mind. It is through coming to him and asking for the forgiveness of our sins. We talked last time that not all roads lead to heaven. It, do, it doesn't happen. Because God has established that there is a way. God has established that there is a way that he has appointed to come to him. And we must recognize that. Whether it's for salvation or through restoring fellowship with God because of our sinful habits and tendencies. Thankfully, we know that God has appointed someone to make God approachable. God is approachable. And so he established it for the Jews. He established the high priest. He established the priest so that they had a way to enter, to approach God. And it is a beautiful picture for them. And that's why, that's why the, the Jews hold dearly the priesthood. And that's why they, they look so uh, ultimately up to them because they understood that the priests were the ones who went before God and the ones who went before God to the people. So they, they understood the importance of it. Now, the priests were allowed. And why just the priests? Because that is what God had declared. That was the issue that Korah had, that Datham and Abiram had. Why just them? Because that is what God has established. We can't look and say, well, we're gods and we're going to figure it out ourselves. We're going to do our own thing. No, God has established a way to approach him. And so Aaron and his family were uniquely chosen by God to be what? The mediators between God and the people. Only the high priest then, even out of those priests, was allowed to even go a little bit further on that day of atonement and make sacrifice. Remember, on that yearly basis, once a year, the, the high priest would enter in and all the sins of Israel were going to be symbolically atoned for as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. And as he take, took, took the blood and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat, that blood being there was a symbolic representation that all the sins of Israel that had been brought were going to be atoned for. For those who had by faith entered into that relationship with God through offering the sacrifices. But think about it. Between Yom Kippur 2019 and Yom Kippur 2019, if we were in the Old Testament, there would be thousands of sacrifices between that time. Thousands of animals being slaughtered for the sins of the people, for the individual sins. And there was, there was a lot of sacrifice because there's a lot of sin in our lives, and we know that. What's interesting is even with the high priest, the high priest, according to Leviticus 16, even had to have atonement made for his sins. Why? Because the high priest was a sinner as well. This idea today that the priests or people in that role as a priest somehow have a more sinless dynamic to them, it's not true. Even the high priest of Israel had to offer, make offerings before he could enter in to the holy place because of his sinfulness. So year after year, thousands of other sacrifices were made. And it was never, the process was never ending. It was never completed. That's super important for us to remember. Because in the Old Testament, this was ongoing. Ongoing, never stopping this process of sacrifice. Because, why is that? Because the priesthood and the sacrifices were not perfect. They were, they were humanly flawed. Though the sacrifices were without blemish. I understand that. But we know as we understand our theology even more as we get to the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats, they can't forgive sins. They atone, they cover, they point it forward to someone greater. And so all of that happens 
the priests were doing this, the priests that God had chosen, the way that God had chosen, but it continually happened. In fact, it continually happened until 70 AD. In 70 AD, we know from history, the temple in Jerusalem, the altars were destroyed by Titus Andronicus from the Romans, of the Romans. And they went through and they just, they raised Jerusalem. And the priesthood was, had no, was no longer in need. They were, they were done. There was nowhere to sacrifice. There was nowhere to offer the sacrifices. But thankfully, about 40 years earlier, something amazing happened. We celebrate it. We're celebrating it this week. By the time you're listening to this, you've already celebrated it. What happened? The baby who went from heaven to earth, who went through the veils of the heaven to come here, just like the the priest goes through the veil of the Holy of Holies to enter in. This baby went through the veil but went the other way, left holiness, left heaven to come to earth, to be born in a manger in order to die as a perfect sacrifice, to live holy, to live sinless through his life, and to die as a once-for-all perfect sacrifice upon the cross. As Christ came to do that for us, he put an end to the need of the thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices. And so right around that 30 AD, whatever exact year it was, when Christ dies on that cross, in that once-for-all atonement, shedding his blood, allowing himself to be brutally beaten. Why? To atone for, to take upon himself our sins. Because we cannot approach God with our sinfulness. We are not holy. We need the blood of a sacrifice, a perfect, a holy sacrifice to cover our sins. And that is what Jesus Christ did. And when we talk about salvation, salvation not only saves us from spiritual death, which we talk about, okay, I don't want to die and go to hell. I don't want to face that separation from God, which is a vast dynamic of salvation. But it also brings with it a spiritual life. Just like the rod went from death to life. When we are made to live, when we experience salvation, we are given spiritual life to live for God. It allows us to come into a living relationship with God, which is the greatest experience a person could ever have. If you're sitting here and you're listening to this and you're not saved, the greatest relationship you can ever have is with Jesus Christ. To know that he has brought you spiritual life. To know that you can enter into his presence one day because your sins have been atoned for through Jesus Christ. It's not about simply escaping the fear of judgment, although that is real, but it's also entering into rest because of his grace and his ministry as a merciful high priest. Think about that. He offers the greatest sacrifice. As the great high priest, he enters in and he offers the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. What does he offer? He offers himself. He offers his body, his blood, so that we can enter into a glorious relationship with God. It's not just a a story that we talk about at Christmas and Easter. This is about our spiritual livelihood, about our spiritual life. In fact, when we talk about Christ as a great high priest, and we talk about number 17, my mind continually jumps to Hebrews chapter 4. Would you go with me to Hebrews chapter 4? And we just look as we we start to, to bring this all together. Because if we just leave it there, it's like, okay, great. We got a bunch of Old Testament trivia. Aaron's broad butted. God chose Aaron. But the priesthood, the high priesthood of Aaron, it points to a far greater priest. A far greater high priest. And that high priest is Jesus Christ. Look what Hebrews chapter 4 says. Down in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed through the heavens into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, 
let us hold fast our profession, our profession of faith. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Aaron was a great high priest, but the great high priest is Jesus Christ. Christ is the completely perfect priest. He did not have to make atonement for his sins. In fact, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 12, it reminds us of the inability of the Old Testament sacrifices to remove sins. Okay, we, we talked about that a little bit. But also the sufficiency of Christ's once for all sacrifice to remove sins. He was perfect. The sacrifice was perfect. The high priest was perfect. And because of that, Christ as a high priest made the once for all sacrifice that only over needs to, that only ever, I was like over, that only ever needs to be made. He allowed himself to be sacrificed. It's the only effective sacrifice that can be made for sin. Any other priest who attempts nowadays to reconcile men and God, they're claiming to be a better mediator than Christ. Because Christ was the ultimate high priest. Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. To, to now have someone claim a priestly role, which we do not have in the New Testament era in this church age, but to claim that priestly role is wrong. Christ is the mediator. I would argue this, that any formal religious priesthood on earth is illegitimate and a direct affront to the full and final priesthood of Jesus Christ himself. John MacArthur wrote this. He said, this is equal to, to take that idea of, of the, the religious priesthood now. He said, it's equal to the rebellion of Korah, Datham, and Abiram, who presumed to have the authority not granted to them by God. Christ as the priest, as the ultimate and final high priest, is the one who intercedes, the one who mediates for us. He is the one who goes between God and us and us and God. He is the one who has offered and is the only one who can offer the forgiveness of sins. He's the only one who has the claim and the right to atone for our sins because of his perfect priesthood and his perfect sacrifice. We can't, we can't claim other than that. And so why, why does that make God such a, great high priest, such a great high priest? Because he finished it. He did it totally in all. He's not only a perfect high priest, but he was a perfect person. You notice what the passage in Hebrews 4 says? That he faced, he cannot, uh, all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. Christ is not simply um, removed from human life and concerns. He lived life. When we are in trouble, when we hurt, when we're despondent, when we're strongly tempted, when we want to share our feelings, our needs, our struggles with somebody who understands, that person is Christ. He knows. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. He has went through that. And even to a greater degree because he could not give in to temptation. He was not able to sin. So when sin was brought against him, it was a great affront. It was, it was like sticking it straight in his face. And yet through his divineness, he was able to say no. And yet through his humanity, he understands the struggles we face. He understands your depression. He understands the despondency that you face because of the hardship and the struggles of 2020. Because of the annoyance of all the different things. He understands what you're going through. The, the passage here talks about weakness, where it talks about um, we cannot be touched with our feelings, but in all, tempt, uh, 
all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And it talks about that when we're touched with the feelings of our infirmities or our weakness, the word that's used here talks about our feebleness for infirmities, our, our struggle as a human. It refers to the natural limitations of humanity and as well what comes along with that, the struggle of my ability of sin. Christ understands that. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, I don't know what to say to somebody. I don't know how to comfort them as they're going through a hardship. Christ understands. Christ knows. He is there. He has been through. Our great high priest is not only merciful and faithful, but he's perfectly understanding. He sympathizes with our infirmities, with our weakness, with our feebleness. He has the unequaled ability to sympathize with us in every danger, every trial, in every situation that comes because he has been through it all. He has been able to take it all upon himself and yet go through that with victory. And victory through our despondency, victory through our depression, victory through our struggles and our battles and our sinful tendencies comes through our high priest, Jesus Christ. He knows the battles and yet what do we do? We don't go to him with it. He does it and he does it without sin. In fact, when it talks about yet without sin at the end of verse 15, the, the wording that's used here is there is an absolute absence of sin. It is not present. There wasn't like that moment where he's like, oh, well, it just creeped up a little bit, but I put it down. No, the, the temptation he was able to look, to see, to identify, and to reject the temptation. He was able to live righteously in all that he did. It allowed him to be that perfect sacrifice, that sinless sacrifice. And yet he went through the temptations. He understood them. He was hungry when Satan tempted him with food. He understood that. He, he, was, he, he understood what the temptation of fame and power and glory was, was like. And yet he was able to say no. He pushed away from it. Now, the question may come up and sometimes as well, how could Jesus completely identify with us if he actually did not sin and wasn't able to? Merely experiencing something does not give us the ability to understand it. Think about it this way. You, a person could have a whole bunch of successful operations without understanding the least bit about surgery. You may have had 15 surgeries in your life, and yet you don't know how that all works. So because you've had experience does not give you understanding. The same thing's true of a doctor. A doctor can perform thousands of uh, surgeries, operations, without ever having had surgery upon himself. And so you look at what is happening here. You don't need that to, the experience to understand. It's the knowledge of the disease and the disorder. It's the knowledge of the, the, having the surgical skill in treating it that qualifies him, not actually having the disease. Who better understands? Jesus understands sin. Though he never sinned, he understands sin better than any human ever could. He has seen it more clearly. He has fought it more diligently than any of us could ever be able to do. And yet he didn't have to experience it. We don't have to experience sin to know that sin is wrong. We need to have an understanding. And so our great high priest, without sin, understands that sin was wrong, understands temptation, and he pushes it away. He doesn't have to have experienced every single one. He understands what sin is. He understands the temptation. And he is able to say, no, don't do it. He understands. It was really interesting as I was reading through on that idea of understanding sin and being able to reject. There was a story that was told of Booth Tucker. Booth Tucker was a, a preacher at the Salvation Army back when the Salvation Army preached the gospel on a consistent basis in the right way back in Chicago. And as he was there, he was preaching to the group of people and he was talking about the sympathy of God, that God identifies with us, that God understands our struggles. God understands our sinful temptations. God understands our struggles. And a man walks up to him and says, if your wife had just died like mine has, and your kids were crying for their mother, 
who would never come back, you wouldn't be saying that God is a sympathetic God. And what he was saying is, you haven't experienced what I have, and God obviously is not sympathetic, so therefore you can't say it because you've never experienced it. Well, sadly, two days later, from that moment, Booth Tucker's wife died in a train accident. And at her funeral, he stood up and he talked to the people there. And he said, he relayed this story. And he said, if this man is here, here's what I would like to tell him. I want to tell this man that Christ is sufficient. My heart is broken. It's crushed. But it has a song and Christ put it there. I want to tell that man that Jesus Christ speaks comfort to me today. That man was there. In fact, after the service, Booth Tucker relays that this man came to him and talked to him and by the kneeling by his wife's coffin, this man prayed to accept Jesus Christ as his savior. Booth Tucker didn't need to experience that in order to relate to the man. Same thing is true with Christ, though God allowed that in Booth Tucker's life. But Christ has experienced it all. And yet without sin, he understands what you're going through and he will put a song in your heart. It is about running to Christ. We've run to so many things. We're running to, whether it's vaccines or we're running to news articles or we're running to doctors and we're running to people and and blogs and, and posts and trying to find comfort everywhere but potentially in the one who is able to bring the greatest comfort, that is Christ. He is sufficient. He is sympathetic. He understands our struggles. So Christ is the perfect priest. He's the perfect person. And Christ completely and perfectly provides. Notice what it says, 1 Corinthians talks about, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able. But with that temptation, he's going to provide the way of escape also, that it may be able to endure it. And in First Hebrews 4, he says at verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Why? Because he's going to provide what? Mercy and grace. It overflows from the throne of grace. Christ is saying, as the high priest, I want to provide what you need. I sympathize with you. I know your battles. I know your struggles. I am approachable. Even with our sin issues, we often run away from God because we are ashamed of our sinfulness, our sinful thoughts. But he says, let us come boldly with confidence to the throne. Let us come before him. Not just to offer our request to him. Yes, we come boldly to ask requests. But in the, in the context here, even dealing with my sinfulness. Because he's that perfect high priest. He mediates. He helps us with. He sympathizes with our battles and our struggles. So let us come boldly. Any penitent person, no matter how sinful, no matter how undeserving, can approach God's throne at any time for forgiveness. That's the great high priest. They can be confident. Anyone who is penitent and comes can be confident that they will receive and experience God's grace and God's mercy. God is approachable. God wants to forgive us of our sins. God wants us to run to him and restore relationship and fellowship with him. After all, it's the throne of grace. It's not the throne of a big stick that's going to just keep beating you down. It is a throne of God's grace. Looking and saying, yes, I understand. Yes, I understand you failed. Yes, I understand your sinful tendencies and struggles. Come to me. Repent of your sins. Ask for forgiveness. Allow my grace to flow from my throne to you. God is so approachable. He's so gracious. He's so sympathetic. But yet, what do we do? Just like in Hebrews chapter 17, or number 17, as we finish up, the last couple verses are very interesting. The Jews get it right, but they get it wrong. What, they, they understand very clearly now, God is holy and he is 
totally other than us. They look and they say to Moses, and the children of Israel spake to Moses, said, Behold, we die, we perish, we all perish. Whosoever comes anything near unto the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Shall we all be consumed with dying? They get that they deserve death. They get that they are undone, that they are not holy, that they are not right. And yet they say, we can't even come near the tabernacle anymore. They missed the point there. God has just said, I've established Aaron. I've established the priesthood for you to have a way to approach God. In order to do that, they have to come near to the tabernacle. But they're like, we need to get totally away. They got it right in the fact that they were sinful and they should not be near a holy God. But they missed the point that God is approachable and God has made a way for you not to run from God in your sinfulness. Not to run from God when you fail, but to run to God. The people wanted to run away because of their sinfulness. But God tells us to run to him. Why does he do that? Because with the high priest of Aaron, he made a way for the people, the Jews, to approach God on his terms, in his way. And yet we have a greater high priest in Jesus Christ that we should not be running from God in our sinfulness. We should be running to God because our great high priest saves sinners and he sympathizes with saints. He wants to offer forgiveness to those who need it for a relationship and salvation with him. And he wants to offer forgiveness to those of us who are saved and yet still battle with sin and we fail and we're afraid to even talk to anybody, let alone even God, about our sin. He's like, come unto me. He's the one who sympathizes with us when we are battling. And he says, you're weary, you're heavy laden, you can't find hope in this world right now. Come unto me. We need to not run from God. We need to be running to our great high priest. Running to the one that we can find rest and comfort in. Because he is sufficient in all things for us. He's a God who saves and a God who sympathizes. He's to be our chief of staff. Father, we thank you that you so graciously sent Christ to die for us. And not only to die, but then to be that perfect sacrifice. And now to be that great high priest who intercedes for us. To be the one who sympathizes with us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to run to him in our times of need, in our discouragement, in our times of sinfulness. Lord, if there's some who are listening to this and they need to be saved, Lord, I pray that they would turn to you for salvation. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for all that he represents. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.